welcome to episode 42 of Beyond Huaxia. I'm your host, Justin Jacobs. With this episode, we're going to shift our focus from uh, modern Chinese history and move into the history of the Japanese Empire. Um, now, the Japanese Empire, what we're going to be talking about over the next 20 episodes or so, it's essentially the history of modern, well, modern East Asia and to a, a more limited extent, the history of Asia as a whole, as seen through Japanese eyes. Another way of saying this is that it's the history of modern Asia as seen through the eyes of what will become the most important and powerful uh, political, economic, military, and you could argue cultural power um, for the majority of the 20th century. Um, and it's and we are still living with the legacy of the Japanese Empire today. The legacy of the Japanese Empire does not end with, Jap with Japan's defeat in World War II in 1945. The legacy extends all the way through the Cold War. And I would argue that the, the, the preeminent influence of Japan, um, at least in political um, and economic matters, uh, has only very recently been displaced by China uh, in the reform era since the 1990s and early 2000s. Um, but even then, we're still uh, seeing the impact of Japan's cultural influence. Japan, uh, despite having, you know, almost quite literally no military influence beyond its borders whatsoever anymore, um, has enormous cultural influence, not just in Asia, but throughout the world. Uh, anyone here who has grown up playing Nintendo, I'm certainly guilty of that, uh, can immediately recognize the cultural importance of Japan. Uh, that is directly related to what goes on during the empire, even if the political and military aspect of that will be shorn away. Now, the other thing I want to say, sort of this little preamble before we get started with the history of the Japanese empire, is that if you're interested in a history of Japan, the home islands, looking inward, Japanese society, Japanese culture, um, you know, that sort of stuff. Uh, you're not going to get that in these next 20 episodes, because uh, that's not really the focus of what I'm particularly interested in. I love talking about empires. I like big political entities um, that have enormous complexity that go beyond their original core cultural and ethnic boundaries, linguistic boundaries, integrate other people. How do they integrate these people? What are the policies they put in place to, to keep the whole house of cards from falling down? That's the sort of stuff that I find interesting. It's probably why I've stayed so long in studying China and ancient Chinese history, modern Chinese history because it's a large enough entity um, that there's no end to the fascinating topics that you can explore. Um, and I take that same approach with the Japanese empire. Um, I'm not particularly uh, interested would be the wrong word. That'd be a bit too harsh, but uh, I just don't find the history of the Japanese home islands to be as fascinating as the history of what Japan does when it expands beyond those home islands. Um, so our topic today um, how Japan overtook China. Um, you know, huge question uh, that everyone always wants to ask. Well, China is the biggest dog in town in East Asia for 3,000 years. How all of a sudden does Japan uh, overtake China in importance for about 50 years or so and in cultural importance for well over 100 years? Uh, it's a very important question and the Chinese would like an answer to that as well. <laughs> it was certainly something that many Chinese uh, uh, people were asking all throughout the 20th century and today. <clears throat> They're basically asking, 
how the hell did this happen? Uh, you know, Japan kind of came out of nowhere. There were a, a relatively despised people on the fringes of civilization from their point of view for a long time. Um, and all of a sudden, they're playing a dominating role, uh, not just in China, but throughout all of Asia for 50 years. Uh, blew people's minds. Well, we're going to talk about that today. Um, and the lens through which we're going to talk about that is the uh, different responses and the different approaches that the uh, uh, Japan Japan and China took towards the Westerners and the different approaches that Westerners took towards China and Japan. Uh, the ultimate goal of today's podcast is to understand why Japan and China diverged, um, not necessarily from each other, why they had such divergent responses to the arrival of Westerners who were capable of defeating them both in battle. Um, and we're going to examine many different factors um, that will um, help us understand how this happened. Okay, and it's going to be very, very pragmatic. All right, at no point am I am I gonna you know you, you should know me by now after forty one episodes. At no point am I gonna pull out the discourse of the great man and say, well, J you know, Japan had some really enlightened, you know, incredible rulers who happened to be in power in the eighteen fifties, and Japan and China, you know, it's the corrupt Qing dynasty, you know, at the end of its lifetime, you know, and all this sort of stuff. I don't do that. I don't play discourse of the great man. We're gonna look at larger historical conditions. That largely, um, I'm not fatalistic, but sometimes you would even say largely predetermined <laughs> uh, how Japan and China were going to take divergent paths when they were faced with such a powerful foe who seemed to also come out of nowhere. Now, in order to understand what's going on and uh, uh, the larger historical conditions, first we need to understand the nature of the political order in Japan. Uh, from the year 1600 to 1868, 268 years what you have, uh, the uh, power that rules over the Japanese home islands, is called the Tokugawa shogunate. Uh, the Tokugawa being the surname of the family who was able to take over the important office of the shogun for 268 years when they took power in 1600. Uh, it was the uh, Tokugawa Ias who defeated all of his rivals on the battlefield um, and was able to claim the title of sole shogun for himself and rule in the name of the emperor. Now, uh, what is the nature of the Japanese state during the Tokugawa era? It is a unified but highly decentralized state, which is stabilized only by the lack of credible foreign threats to the domestic order. Um, you're not going to have a threat until you have the Americans or the British uh, coming from the sea. Uh, the Tokugawa state is not really going to have to fear any invasion from the east. It's 10,000 miles of Pacific Ocean, probably not from the north either, um, not really from the south. If anything, you might have some troubles with China or Korea from time to time. Uh, maybe the Mongols, uh, uh, they, they, they tried to invade once very disastrously. Uh, but generally speaking, uh, you don't have a whole lot of serious, credible external threats to the domestic order. Power during the Tokugawa era is divided three ways, all right? There are three major components that we need to understand. First off, the most powerful actor, uh, not the, you know, be-all, end-all power, but the most powerful of the three major actors, uh, components that I'm going to talk about, is the shogun. All right, the shogun. Uh, the shogun and his government, which is referred to as the Bakufu, they are located at Edo, E-D-O. That is the name of the town that will become Tokyo. <laughs> it's already a city by this point. Um, uh, Edo is the previous name for Tokyo uh, before 1868 when it changes its name. Um, now, the shogun is based at 
Edo. Um, the shogun, the Chinese characters, the kanji in Japanese for the shogun are the exact same characters which in Chinese are jiangjun, uh, a military general. So the shogun literally means a military general, um, and his government is referred to as the bakufu. Uh, the bakufu, the kanji for that, uh, the meaning of these characters is that it's supposed to be a temporary tent, a temporary encampment. Um, or a temporary tent government. The idea being that the shogun, uh, here's the, the, the fiction that his power rests on, uh, the idea is that the emperor is the sole source of political legitimacy. He's really in charge down in Kyoto, all right, far to the southwest in a separate city. Um, the emperor in Kyoto is the real ruler, of the entire realm, um, but the shogun is his military protector, all right, his military protector, who makes sure that uh, he does the emperor's bidding and keeps the land at peace. Therefore, in order not to sound like he's arrogating power to himself and usurping the emperor's authority, the shogun sets up a temporary tent government in the field like he's on campaign, um, and that's referred to as the bakufu. And uh, so the name of the sh uh, uh, shogun's government at Edo, oftentimes you just refer to, you know, the bakufu made this decision. Uh, you're referring to that dynamic. Now, this is a fiction. The shogun is the most powerful person in the land. The emperor is largely a powerless puppet figurehead. Okay, um, he has some influence because he ha he has a lot of prestige concentrated in his uh, in his office of the emperor down in Kyoto. There is a lot of princes and imperial you know re relations that are down in Kyoto. That's where you know the biggest palaces are and all of that sort of stuff. Um, but he does not have any real military power, um, and he largely has to do what the shogun wants him to do. However. The emperor down in Kyoto and his, you know, the imperial family, they would constitute the second power base, okay? Um, they are uh, able to make overtures to other people in the Tokugawa state, other domains, other uh, regional powers outside of the Bakufu's control. And sometimes they could gain support from rivals of the Bakufu. Now that leads us to our third major component of power sharing during the Tokugawa era. That is what's known as the domains. In Japanese, the daimyo. The kanji for this literally just meaning great landholders. Uh, people who have great estates. Um, essentially, warlords. If you want to use an easy English term to try and understand what we're talking about here. There are roughly 250 daimyo throughout the Japanese islands during the Tokugawa era, okay? Uh, the daimyo are a major force. They are more autonomous than not. So a great way to describe the daimyo, these 250 plus daimyo, would be to say that they are semi-autonomous from the bakufu in Edo. Okay, um, you know, other episode, I think we talked about sort of the history of Japan and whatnot. Uh, there were all kinds of things that they had to do. Uh, they would have to send, you know, a family member would have to live in Edo, uh, sort of as like a hostage, uh, just in case the daimyo ever uh, rebelled against the shogun. Uh, they would have a means of keeping you in line by killing your family members. Um, you know, certain amounts of uh, tax money or revenue would have to be sent in, um, you know, but there were also a lot of things that the daimyo... Uh, 
Um, could not do as well, you know, major marriage decisions. Marriage is always political back in those days. Uh, you know, potential alliances between rival families would have to be approved by the shogun. Um, you would have to send, you know, X amount of resources for this sort of public works project. Um, you know, there were restrictions uh, on the daimyo, but by and large, as long as they did the, you know, 10 things or so that the shogun in Edo required each daimyo to do um, and showed respect and didn't uh, rebel against the Bakufu, uh, largely they would be left to their own devices in their own domains, in their own lands, um, and the, the Bakufu would not meddle in their internal politics and, you know, taxation and relations with their subjects and all of that sort of stuff. So the daimyo are semi-autonomous. Now, uh, what is the significance of all of this? Um, we're calling the Tokugawa state a unified state, all right? Everyone pays lip service and acknowledges that the, that the uh, shogun is the guy in charge, and they make their annual trips to uh, Edo and uh, do all the sort of tribute and whatnot that they're supposed to do. Um, but this is in stark contrast to the, to the situation on the East Asian mainland, China, the Qing Empire. The Qing Empire is a massive overland centralized empire that has certified civil servant magistrates, over 2,000 of them, who are sent in uh, to all the counties, more than 2,000 counties in some 16 to 18 provinces um, over a distance of thousands of miles. You could put multiple Japans, you know, side to side on uh, uh, Qing, Qing Dynasty territory um, and you would still have extra room to uh, move around in, all right? Um, the sheer breadth of the control that you have a centralized government in power over in China during the Qing Dynasty is breathtaking. Okay, not only that, they have a certification system, they have an examination system, a civil service examination system, uh, very standardized. It's been standardized already for five, six hundred years by the time the Qing Dynasty comes to power in 1644. They have a mechanism uh, by which a central government certifies the competency of its civil servants and then sends them out to the provinces to rule their subjects. And these magistrates ha uh, have to do exactly what the central government tells them to do. There's a high degree of control in the Qing Empire that you see nothing of the sort in the Tokugawa Empire. More on that later on in this episode. Keep that in mind, because uh, one of the biggest differences in how you respond to the threat of the West uh, is how the West perceives you. And if the West perceives uh, a centralized, massive state with tons of resources, and they think if we defeat Beijing in battle and they give us access to all this land and all their civil servants will, will uh, you know, fall in line and uh, help us get what we want, isn't that much better than going to battle against the uh, shogun and then finding out that the daimyo and the, uh, you know, the, the far out regions of the islands won't comply with what we thought we he had conceded to us in Edo. Um, you know, it's it's a big difference. All right, so keep that in the back of your mind. Now, what models of political legitimacy existed at this time period? Really, there's only one model of political legitimacy, and it derives entirely from the Chinese mainland. This is the Confucian ritual hierarchy embodied through tribute. 
Okay, uh, the emperor in the Confucian world order, the Chinese world order, uh, you have an emperor who presides over a cosmologically determined political hierarchy with explicit inequality among its members. Someone must be the older brother and someone must be the younger brother and older brother is superior to younger brother. There is zero possibility of complete equality. All right, this is the discourse. I'm not saying it's the reality. In reality, the Confucian world order was totally rocked <laughs> and upended from time to time by uh, uh, usually nomads from the north who invaded and defeated them and then uh, co-opted the Confucian discourse and were just as arrogant as the people that they displaced. But this is the discourse. This is what the Chinese emperor uh, projects to the rest of the world. Anyone who wants to interact with us, you will interact with us um, according to the Confucian ritual hierarchy. Now, that's not the only system that existed during the Qing dynasty. During the Qing dynasty, because your rulers are also derived from the northern nomadic steppe, you also have a, a, a discourse of Chinggisid legitimacy uh, from the Mongols. Um, you need to be a descendant or married to a descendant of Chinggis Khan in order to claim the loyalties and interact with people on the inner Asian steppe. Uh, there would be Tibetan Buddhist legitimacy as well. You need to get the approval of the Dalai Lama and the Panchen Lama um, in order to uh, lay claim to the loyalties of the larger cultural Tibetan world order. And there's even Islam. Uh, you would need to cultivate ties with local Muslim authorities in Central Asia because the Qing Empire extended there as well. So in during the Qing dynasty specifically, or really any dynasty on the mainland that was conquered by northern uh, inter-Asian nomads, you'll have multiple forms of political legitimacy. But as you move eastward outside of China and you get into the Korean Peninsula and especially Japan, the one model that they import is that Confucian hierarchy. All right, in which everyone is explicitly delineated in an unequal hierarchy and younger brothers have to send tribute and kowtow and pay obeisance and do, you know, trips to the emperor's court um, and uh, perform their acknowledgement of their inferiority. And then in exchange, you get um, to, you know, tax-free trading privileges and it can be very economically lucrative. And then you go back home and you say, look, the emperor recognized me as a legitimate ruler here. Uh, that gives me a leg up in the fight against all of my rivals. Um, so in Japan, the Tokugawa state is importing the Confucian ritual hierarchy with explicit inequality. This Confucian world order was imagined to be self-sufficient and without rivals or peers. Again, that's the discourse. Doesn't mean that's the reality. It is imagined, however, by the people who expound this discourse that we're self-sufficient, we have everything that we need, and we brook no rivals and there are no peers. Whoever is the oldest brother in the hierarchy is the you know undisputed most civilized, powerful person on earth, and everyone else needs to acknowledge that fiction. Okay, now the Qing liked to claim Japan as a loyal tributary, as a younger brother, a quite inferior younger brother. In reality, Japan actually, the Tokugawa state, was really the only nearby state in East Asia that was actually capable of remaining aloof from China. Uh, being islands that aren't connected to the mainland actually helps out quite a bit with that. <laughs> Korea didn't quite have that luxury. Um, and in fact, not only was uh, the Tokugawa state often able to remain aloof from Chinese political pretensions, um, they actually emulated Chinese political pretensions themselves, creating their own unequal political hierarchy uh, uh, glued together by tribute um, that was based in Edo. China was a continental hegemon 
Japan liked to think of itself also as a hegemon, but in reality it was more a regional hegemon, whose pretensions were upheld largely by isolation and the lack of an external military threat. Uh, but as you'll see, as we, especially in the next episode when we talk about Hokkaido um, and the Ryukyu Islands, uh, uh, the Tokugawa state, both some of the daimyo um, and the shogun, uh, liked to try to claim the tribute and the loyalties of the people who lived on their peripheries and who they saw as inferior to themselves as well, chiefly the Ryukians and the Ainu, uh, Ryukians to the south and Ainu to the north. Um, so, the earliest contacts with the West. When you get your first Westerners coming to Japan, they find, this is, you know, 16, uh, 16th, 17th, 18th century, all right, the Portuguese, the Spanish, and the Dutch are actually some of the first uh, Europeans to, to make their way to Japan during the Tokugawa state. They confront, they are, they encounter this, this political system, this hierarchy, this Confucian tribute hierarchy. Um, and it's a shock to them that they're, they're, they're not used to it. Um, but nevertheless, they find that if you want to do business with the Tokugawa, um, you're going to be isolated uh, to the distant far reaches of the Tokugawa state, and you're going to be segregated, um, and you're going to be forced into the lowest rung of filial hierarchy in that tribute system that Japan has imported from China. And that's exactly what happens. Uh, the Portuguese are expelled at will, eventually. Portuguese usually don't make a very good uh, name for themselves. They tend not to make a first good impression anywhere in East Asia. Uh, a little bit too rapacious and eager to kill and uh, make a profit. Uh, the Dutch sometimes make a slightly better impression. Um, and they did make a somewhat better impression um, on the uh, Tokugawa state. Uh, never Because they chiefly they brought in some uh, medical knowledge um, and other learning that was uh, became known in uh, Japanese as Dutch learning that was seen as useful. So the Dutch were seen as not just sort of barbarians interested in commerce, but actually uh, a little more educated and cultivated than the Portuguese seemed to be to from the Japanese perspective. So the Dutch would allow to have access to an artificial island known as Dejima, uh, located outside of Nagasaki. Nagasaki was where the uh, foreigners were going to be isolated and segregated. Um, where is Nagasaki? It is on the about as far to the southwest as you can possibly go on the three main Japanese islands. Uh, one, you know, one of the downsides of the podcast is we can't really draw a map here. Uh, at some point, if you're in, if you're going to stick with these episodes, um, go online and look at a map of Japan uh, from you know during the Tokugawa state, especially the early Tokugawa state, 17th century, uh, 18th century. The home islands of the Tokugawa state, the islands that you would say, oh, these are culturally Japan through and through. Um, that's going to be Honshu. Honshu is the largest island, uh, sort of elongated a little bit, you know, elongated in a horizontal shape, but sort of oriented from the southwest to the northeast. Um, uh, that's where you're going to have uh, Kyoto uh, and uh, sort of central southwestern location of Honshu. And then sort of central northeast location of Honshu is going to be Edo. Um, and then you're going to have uh, immediately to the southwest of that, you have two more islands uh, that aren't connected to Honshu and aren't connected to Korea. It's going to be the island of Shikoku. Uh, Shikoku doesn't really turn up that much in the, in, uh, uh, as an important place, at least uh, in the history of the Japanese Empire. We don't see a whole lot of stuff happening there. Uh, but remember the other island, Kyushu. Kyushu is the island that is immediately south of Korea. Uh, later on, when, when uh, Japanese administrators are talking about how 
Korea is a threat to Japan. We need to colonize Korea and neutralize this threat. Um, they describe Korea as a dagger pointed at the heart of Japan. Uh, in, in reality, it's a dagger pointed at Kyushu. <laughs> um, and Nagasaki is in the far southwestern tip of Kyushu. Um, and not only that, that, that wasn't sufficient. They said, it's not, we're not just going to isolate you as far as we can in, on uh, Nagasaki. That's not going to be the place where you're allowed to trade. You're going to have to actually live on an artificial island that we're going to construct outside of Nagasaki. Uh, they really didn't want them there. Okay, um, and you are placed on the lowest rung of this hierarchy. The Dutch did have to pay tribute to the shogun at Edo. All right. Um, the message is clear. You came to us. It seems like you need us more than we need you. We're not going to your home country. Uh, so these are the generous terms of the relationship that we're willing to concede to you. You want to change them? You're going to have to beat us in battle. <laughs> Otherwise, you conduct business on our terms, and that means you get placed at the bottom on an artificial island off the furthest southwestern location of our domains. The Westerners were referred to as barbarians, just like those on the mainland also referred to them as barbarians. Um, and it would be difficult, again, uh, to come to terms with the fact later in the 19th century that these barbarians ultimately managed to turn the tables and uh, defeat us in military battle. All right. Now, um, what is our first major impact of the West? The Dutch, the Portuguese, the Spaniards in the early Tokugawa state, uh, fairly insignificant overall, all right? They're there, and because we know what's happening later, we look back uh, to this early period and we think, and we uh, invest it with more importance than it really deserves. Uh, the Westerners were pretty damn isolated and significant in the early Tokugawa state, and that was by design. However, this is going to change in the 19th century. And when the Westerners come to Japan, 1853... Commodore Matthew Perry, U.S. Navy, and they say, we need to open this country once and for all. We're not going to take some, you know, some crap arrangement where we get isolated to some distant island. Uh, we want to go to the heart of Japan and gain some influence here and see what we can do and trade. Uh, they're going to use a tool of diplomacy that was honed in Europe and that was quite alien to the Japanese, the treaties, treaties. All right. Um, where do you get treaties from? Later on, you're probably more familiar with the term unequal treaties because that's how these are all going to be referred to later uh, because they're all going to be in favor of the Western countries. Treaties were a uniquely European tool of diplomacy. All right. In Europe, you never have a stable hegemon. You had the Roman Empire, but that was a long, long time ago. And no one's been able to recreate the Roman Empire ever since. Okay, what you have is you have well over a hundred states. You have a ton of states. Now, the really big states, there's a handful, uh, but you have all kinds of small little principalities and duchies and all these sorts of things in Europe. You have a lot of states. And even among the handful of the really big ones, the British, the Spanish, the French, the Prussians, the Russians, you know, the, the, the Austrians, uh, whoever you want to talk about. Okay, uh, the Dutch, even among them, there's still no clear hegemon. Okay, um, this is different than the situation that you see in both the East Asian mainland, it's China, or whoever controls central China, um, and in Japan, it's, it's the Japanese. Okay, in Europe, you have constant interstate warfare among a far higher number of totally autonomous states. Okay. No possibility of anyone remaining aloof 
from the constant intrigues of European warfare. Now, you have constant warfare in China as well. I don't want to make it sound like there's no war and the Asians are more peaceful. You have constant warfare in China as well. But it mostly occurs among a far smaller number of states. And then every once in a while, those states do manage to defeat all their rivals and there's just one state. One big state, an acknowledged hegemon. Okay? Um, you know, the Ming Dynasty, the Qing Dynasty. And yeah, there's other states on the periphery that they're dealing with, um, but it's pretty clear who is, you know, the big dog on the block. It's China. Um, they're largely the undisputed hegemon. And Japan arrogates the same pretensions, the Tokugawa shogunate arrogates the same pretensions uh, for them as well. Europe, because it doesn't have a stable and undisputed hegemon from time to time like Asia gets, and in the interim uh, of not having a stable hegemon, they have far more states that are fighting with each other all the time. Treaties became a useful way to, to encode norms of interaction among all these European states and enshrine complex alliance systems that you just don't see in the East Asian context. And what treaties did, they're often said, you know, the, uh, the Westphalian system created in the, in the 17th century. Uh, treaties are often said to sort of emerge from this new political order um, that was uh, determined during the 17th century. What they do is that treaties declare ostensible equality among all states. I say ostensible because it's a political fiction. Uh, two states create a treaty, three states create a treaty, and in the wording of the treaty, they all act like we're all equal. Um, and we're going to treat each other as sovereign states with full equality. Um, when in reality, we know that this is a political fiction and that someone always has the upper hand and is dictating the terms of the treaty and the uh, uh, language of equality is largely a facade. All right. In this sense, you might say that the Confucian Sinocentric world order of explicit inequality um, is a little less disingenuous, actually, even though that's also a fiction. All right. Uh, you know, there are other people, uh, there are many other states will uh, do the ritual kowtow to the Confucian emperor uh, purely as a pragmatic means of getting access to lucrative markets in China. And they don't really mean it when they're going and, uh, you know, humiliating themselves in, in front of the emperor. Uh, nevertheless, um, it's a little more honest <laughs> in saying, you know what, we're not equal and we're not even going to act like we're equal. Uh, the Western system in that sense is, is, is more disingenuous than, you know, I mean, it does proclaim equality, um, and this e e uh, ostensible equality will later be mirrored in the idea that you have a one-to-one -one correlation of, you know, we send ambassadors to your country, you send ambassadors here, we'll have an equal number of consuls, and all this sort of stuff, all right? Um, by the mid-19th century, these two political traditions are going to clash, all right? Um, they didn't clash yet because to Tokugawa state had the upper hand and they dictated terms and they forced the Portuguese, the Dutch, and the Spaniards into their system. And the Westerners had couldn't do anything about it. Uh, by the 19th century, the power balance has changed and the Westerners can do something about it. And uh, these two systems are going to clash. One must prevail over the other. After the first opium war, 1839 to uh, 1842 in China against the Qing dynasty and the British, after the British win the first opium war, the European system will begin to win and gradually displace that Confucian tribute model that all Westerners were forced to deal with um, and conform with uh, for the past hundred years or so.
Now, the European pretext for all these interactions, the European pretext for trying to change the terms on which uh, diplomacy is going to occur is free trade. But you've heard this one before, right? <laughs> free trade. Hear it all the time. Whenever a country knows today that they have the upper hand and uh, as long as we get our products in that country, we know that by you know, one means or another, we'll be able to get the upper hand and dictate the terms. Um, we, you know, you, you, all you have to say then is uh, all we want is free trade. That sounds so altruistic. What's wrong with free trade? Um, well, the weaker country knows that there's a hell of a lot wrong with, with uh, free trade and it's never totally free. You're going to be able to impose certain uh, uh, restrictions and um, um, uh, control over supply and demand. Um, and if you really need to, you'll, you'll send your military in to intervene in the situation if you're not making as much money as you like. Um, you know, it's never actually free trade in practice. But that is the uh, uh, pretense, the pretext upon which these interactions between uh, China and, you know, Britain and France and the Tokugawa state and uh, Britain and France and the Dutch will also take place as well. All right, we just want free trade and you're not letting us engage in free trade. So we're going to have to go to battle over this and we'll just see who wins the battle and who wins the battle gets to start to impose their system of how politics works. Okay. All right. Now let's get into details. We've gotten a lot of big pictures here. Now let's get into the fine nitty gritty. Um, what we're uh, aiming towards here is the year 1858, in which the Tokugawa, uh, the Bakufu, the Shogun, will sign what becomes known in English as the Treaty of Amity and Commerce. Oh, doesn't that sound nice? Amity and Commerce. Everyone just wants to get along, make money, and be friends. <laughs> That's that political fiction once more. Uh, we're all equal. Let's just all, you know, have, uh, uh, be nice and gentle with one another. We're all going to make money and uh, have big, big, happy smiles on our face. All right. How do we get to 1858, the signing of the first unequal treaty between Japan and, uh, uh, in this case, the United States? Um, Commodore Matthew Perry, 1853. All right. This is when the United States decides to get into the game of East Asian politics. The British are by far predominant up to this point. Uh, the Dutch have significant interest uh, down in what is now Indonesia. Uh, the British and French have uh, huge spheres of influence in China. Uh, the British obviously have India. The French have uh, much of Indochina. Um, and the Americans start to think we need to get in on this as well. Uh, Japan, uh, you know, geographically, uh, it's the first major country that you're going to hit when you go across the Pacific Ocean. Um, and uh, that's going to be a place that uh, we should be able to establish some of our influence. Uh, the, so the Navy sends Commodore Matthew Perry uh, to open up Japan by any means necessary in 1853. Enough of this arrogant uh, 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 Japanese shogun uh, telling us that we're going to do everything on his terms and you have to be isolated to some artificial island off the coast of Nagasaki on the ends of the Japanese world. Okay, now what's important to understand here, before Perry arrives in 1853, the precedent of signing treaties as a means of how the Europeans do diplomacy has already been set in the Qing Empire on the East Asian mainland. Okay, remember the Opium War, just talked about it. By 1853, the Opium War, the Treaty of Nanjing, has already been signed for 11 years. 1842, that, that sucker is signed, which gave Britain all kinds of special privileges um, in the Qing Empire. Treaty ports, giving away Hong Kong, uh, favorable trading terms, this sort of stuff. Uh, the ability to, to have your own ambassador in the country. Um, so the precedent of the treaties is already set. The Japanese know this. And they debate the issue. 
And there are people on both sides of the debate. Some people say we can't open our country to these barbarians. Other ones say, I don't think you've realized how much has changed <laughs> since the last time the barbarians came knocking on our door. Uh, they can beat us in battle now. And we're not in a position to be calling the shots anymore. Um, despite these internal debates, most elites in the Tokugawa Japan, they knew that if China could not win, they definitely could not win. If the Qing dynasty with, you know, all its resources, um, if they couldn't beat tiny little Britain, how are we going to beat uh, another Western power, the United States? And they knew that after the Qing dynasty lost, the treaties were imposed after defeat in war. You can't negotiate favorable terms when it's uh, uh, been imposed on you in defeat, after defeat. You want to have any hope of gaining favorable terms for yourself in some sort of diplomatic, you know, paperwork, uh, the treaty, you need to uh, not lose a war. <laughs> and if you know you're going to lose a war if you go to battle, then you need to find a way to prevent going to war in the first place because you're guaranteed if you go to battle and lose, the terms will be much worse than if you uh, go to the table willingly and sign a piece of paper um, uh, without having lost. Because after you go to war, um, even if you lose, you're going to have killed some of the enemy's people. You're going to have sunk some of their ships, most likely. Um, and then you're going to get punitive damages inside that treaty in which they're going to say, we want revenge for our countrymen that you killed. We want uh, payback for the ship that you sunk. Um, and the terms are much, much worse. They're far more punitive. So from the beginning, the Bakufu has the precedent of what happened to China. That's really, really important to understanding how Japan overtakes China. All right. Uh, they had they saw what happened to China first, and they could learn from that. China didn't have this sort of precedent of what happens when you uh, uh, choose to fight and lose, um, and uh, as opposed to negotiating voluntarily from the beginning. Plus, they thought they could win because they were so much bigger and more powerful than Japan and used to being the hegemon. More on that later. Um, so, from the beginning, the Bakufu chose negotiation over hostilities. They knew they had no other option than diplomacy, despite a few of the more hardline advisors in the uh, uh, Bakufu who were arguing to fight the barbarians. There were some people still arguing for that. Uh, but the shogun ultimately determined, we cannot fight. Uh, we also can't prevent the foreigners' arrival. They come whether we want them to come or not. And we also can't expect help from any Asian allies. All right? No one's going to come to our defense from anywhere else in Asia. Uh, they're all having a hell of a time dealing with these barbarians themselves. All right. They may be barbarians, but we really don't have any choice here. And we've seen how uh, the Qing dynasty, how China has already been humiliated. Um, and if they can't win, what hope do we have? And so as a result, the Bakufu uh, is, is rewarded. The, the correct verb is rewarded with the 1858 Treaty of Amity and Commerce. Okay. Uh, limited Western presence is imposed on the Tokugawa state, and very isolated economic consequences. No war reparations, no war indemnities. All right, the Treaty of Amity and Commerce, although it's not all about amity, <laughs> um, it's still an unequal treaty. I don't want to gloss that over. It's still favorable to the U.S. and not to the Japanese. Um, it's not nearly as damaging as the sort of treaties that the Qing dynasty has already begun to sign with the Westerners. Okay. Now, why does the West, why do the Americans in this case, uh, but everyone else is going to jump on board very quickly. All right. Why do the Westerners give Japan comparatively favorable treatment as opposed to China? 
I always like to emphasize the mostly counterintuitive factors entirely beyond Japan's control. I ain't giving credit to anyone. <laughs> no individual is going to be a visionary diplomat in, in my mind. I'm not going to say the Japanese had a better read on the, uh, on the Europeans or anything like that. No. Big historical conditions that, uh, um, you know, accidents of history, essentially. Um, all right. Isolation a decentralized state, and lack of resources. These things, natural resources, turns out to be a boon for the Japanese. All right? From the Westerner's perspective, if you can crack the China nut, you get access to a whole world of goodies because that's one big, tasty nut. <laughs> All right? Um, it's an enormous empire. It spreads for thousands of miles in every direction. From the center. Obviously, if you're in Shanghai, it doesn't spread for thousands of miles to the east. All right, it's huge. It's wealthy. There's enormous agricultural wealth. All right. There's a huge market. If you're selling opium, there's a lot of people you can sell opium to in China. Um, and it's centralized. You win one little battle, one little skirmish like the Opium War, which the Qing Dynasty didn't even really regard as a major humiliating defeat. They were like, all right, that was a mosquito bite. Unfortunately, we lost, but it's not, you know, an existential threat. You, you win one little limited engagement like that. You sign a, a piece of paper with the, with the Qing Emperor, and lo and behold, everyone in the entire empire will adhere to, what the, to the concessions that the emperor gave you. You take that piece of paper down to Hong Kong, you know, you know, the opposite end from of the Qing Empire, and as far south as you can go from Beijing, and you bring this treaty signed by the emperor with his seal on it, um, and all the local officials will will uh, enact the provisions that you've been granted. They're not going to be like the daimyo in Japan where they say. The Bakufu told you you could do this. Sorry, you can't do that in our domain. <laughs> All right, try and do it. We'll kill you. That's what would happen in Japan. That doesn't happen in China. Not only that, but China has a lot more resources of every conceivable sort. Natural resources, too. Japan's fairly resource poor, actually. Very mountainous. Uh, this is one of the reasons uh, towards the end of the 19th century, when Japan actually does embark on, you know, breakneck modernization, many of the leaders will say, we need to get out of these islands. It's too confining. We don't have enough natural resources to industrialize. We need raw materials from the East Asian mainland. And that's why they're going to go to Korea. That's why they're going to go into Manchuria. That's why they're going to take over China. That's why they're going to go into Southeast Asia. They're going to say, we need natural resources. We don't have enough. The Japanese islands are fairly resource poor. In that sense. Okay? So that's a further incentive for the Westerners to spend all their attention and all their military resources in China and a disincentive to do the same in Japan. It's a major disincentive. You go to Japan and you fight a battle and you win and then, you know, you find out that... Uh, the daimyo of Satsuma in the far southwest on the island of Kyushu won't honor that agreement. That's not cool. It's not cool at all. So you start to learn, and he, he, even if he did honor it, there, uh, the market isn't as lucrative in Japan as it is in China. So focus your energies, your battles on China, not on Japan. That's what you get. 
Plus, Japan was also seen as a very convenient buffer zone in close geographical proximity to China. Um, that could be seen as, you know, sort of a, a safe, neutral area where you could uh, refuel and restock and not have such overt hostilities um, and have a small little community there without any of the tensions that exist on China. Um, and uh, here we can sort of make an analogy with uh, Thailand or Thailand's predecessor, Siam. Uh, Siam, often said to be, you know, one of the few Asian countries that was never colonized by Westerners, right? And you think, well, how is this possible? Um, Indochina, all the, all the countries, all the land to the east of Siam and all the land to the west were all colonized. Burma and India to, to the west, uh, they were colonized by the British. And then to the east, um, Cambodia, Laos, and Vietnam, um, not known as those countries in, in, in that day, um, they were colonized by the French. How did Siam manage to uh, um, you know, prevent this fate? And today, from our all our nationalist perspective, we look back, and of course, you're gonna sort of, you know, people are gonna try to take pride in that. Yes, the Thai. We're special. We're a special nation. <laughs> uh, you know, and they'll bring up all kinds of reasons about the special nation, uh, the special nature of our of our people, um, where we were too proud, uh, we were too strong, or something like that. No! If the British or French wanted to take over Thailand with all of its hassles and everything, they could have done it. It wouldn't have been a, you know, a smooth ride, but they could have done it if they really wanted to. All right. Um, but it was more useful to say, hey, wouldn't it be nice to have this buffer zone here? Um, a place that would be sort of a separation between French Indochina and British India. Um, and uh, in which we all agree we're not going to fight any big battles here. We don't have to worry about other countries getting influence. Um, and it can be sort of like, you know, this nice refueling stopover type of location. All right. Um, and, you know, it's just not worth the trouble. Uh, we'll focus on India. You focus on Indochina. Japan's benefiting from similar conditions. All right. They're saying let's exchange the inevitable loss of economic autonomy for recognition of native political authority and sovereignty, which the big countries next to us are losing. They tried to fight for their sovereignty, and they're losing that battle. India already lost it a long time ago. <laughs> uh, the Qing dynasty is actively losing this battle. And if they're going to lose that battle, we're going to lose it as well. The Westerners already are inclined to treat us with more favorable terms because we're not uh, uh, so much worth the effort, right? Uh, we're a tougher nut to crack, and there's a lot less of a nut inside once you crack the shell. Uh, it's just not worth it for them. They're going to focus on the big juicy nuts of India um, and China, and we can benefit by that. Let's recognize that political calculus and take advantage of it. Okay, so... What are the tangible provisions of the 1858 Treaty of Amity and Commerce between the United States and the Tokugawa Bakufu? Uh, it, re it does require the opening of the first treaty port. That's something that the Westerners always want to get. You need to give us a town uh, where we can live and reside, and uh, uh, from the safety of this little bubble, we're going to be able to conduct trade um, nearby and make a profit. And that's going to be our sort of, you know, our way of getting our hooks into your economy and into your people, and uh, we're going to, you know, sort of spread out and build our influence from there, okay? Uh, sort of like with Hong Kong and the uh, Qing Empire. The chief domestic tension here from the Tokugawa state signing this treaty is that, again, the Tokugawa state is not centralized, 
okay? So any foreign imposition, anything that's seen as a humiliation, even if it's not as much of a, humili of a humiliation as China was forced to swallow, uh, any sort of humiliation imposed on you from outside it will introduce a very volatile variable in the relationships among the decentralized political power holders. Okay, um, remember, uh, there's the shogun, there's uh, the emperor and his court in Kyoto, there's the daimyo, you've got a class of samurai that still exists. Okay, um, what could go wrong? What if there's a dispute with foreigners? What if violence breaks out? What if one of them is killed? This is going to be mixed residence now. They'll start off in their own little bubble, but they're not going to stay in that bubble exclusively. What happens inevitably when this all-male community of Westerners starts having sexual relationships with Japanese women, whether prostitutes or otherwise? Um, what if they get tangled up in economic negotiations um, and disputes over payments for this or that? What happens? Who resolves these disputes? Well, I, in China, that's easy. The emperor. And you'll just sign another treaty. And if you need to, you'll go to battle again and then sign another treaty. And everyone else in, the, in, in your entire empire will fall in line. Not so in Japan. The, the, the shogun in Edo, he presumes to be able to make all the decisions and resolve these disputes. Uh, but his power is limited. If he finds that his advisors and you know the representatives from the other domains don't like what he's done, and he's enacting policies that lead to the humiliation of Japan, they might take action and say, we're already semi-autonomous. Let's look after the interest of our domain that the Bakufu is selling out. And now because he's distracted and humiliated by the Westerners, he actually has less power to keep us in line anyways. Okay. Uh, the chain of command is not nearly as clear or stable in Japan as it is in China. This problem does not exist in China, which is another reason why the West prefers to concentrate all efforts there. You win, you get a treaty, Beijing enforces the, the provisions of that treaty everywhere, and you make a ton of money. All right. So the Bakufu, cognizant of this problem and the, po the po po potential for uh, destabilizing conflict domestically, uh, prefers to try to isolate foreigners entirely. Don't give the most powerful domains the most powerful daimyo, don't give them any pretext to get involved in the political affairs of the entire state. Who are the most powerful daimyo? Here we need to introduce a couple of names that you should be familiar with. Uh, Satsuma and Choshu. All right, uh, I was saying, you know, there's there's the, the shogun in Edo, there's uh, the emperor in Kyoto, and then there's the daimyo. Among all the daimyo, the two most powerful daimyo are also in the southwest. Choshu. Uh, C-H-O-S-H-U. Choshu is in the furthest southwestern portion of Honshu Island. That's the longest, biggest island on which you also have Kyoto and Edo. Uh, it's on the furthest southwest tip of Honshu. Choshu is a very powerful daimyo. Uh, right up there with them is Satsuma. Satsuma is, the, uh, uh, is on Kyushu Island. So again, all the way to the distant southwest. Um, they're as far away from Edo as you can pretty much get and still be on the Japanese islands. Um, I like the name Satsuma. That always reminds me. The first time I ever uh, uh, taught this class, I was typing up my lecture notes, and uh, I had just broken my arm ice skating uh, a week before the first day of class. 
And so I actually had to create all of my early lecture notes for uh, talking about um, the, the Japanese empire. Uh, the first several weeks of lecture notes, I couldn't type. I had to use voice dictation, voice recognition software. And it was quite a trip uh, to learn how to use this. It was pretty cool. Um, but anyways, every single time that I would, I wanted the computer to type in Satsuma, it would always type in, sucks so much. <laughs> For some reason, I just thought that was the most uh, hilarious thing that I ever saw. I, I constantly, every time I had to say Satsuma, um, I had to delete that um, and manually with one finger on one hand uh, type in Satsuma. So every single time I talk about Satsuma, I'm uh, 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 going off of notes that originally said, suck so much. All right, Satsuma and Choshu. Okay, uh, they're going to be the chief detractors and rivals of the Bakufu. And remember those names because those two domains are also going to provide the people who ultimately decide we want to overthrow the Shogun and Edo um, and restore the emperor to his rightful place as the leader of Japan. Um, and that's where we're all going with that. The tensions introduced by Westerners in a decentralized state like the Tokugawa state will lead to some of these decentralized actors, Choshu and Satsuma, the two most powerful ones, taking affairs into their own hands um, and overthrowing the state and then embarking on modernization. So what the Bakufu does initially they're not, they still have another 10 years or so before they're going to fall out of power. They're not, they're, 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 they're not out of ideas yet. They persuade the Americans. They say, okay, we'll give you a treaty port. We'll open up a new town for you guys. But let's make it very close to Edo. This isn't like in Qing Dynasty where, they take, where, the, where the British take Hong Kong, you know, at the furthest other opposite end of the Qing Empire. Um, the, uh, uh, the Bakufu says, I want to keep a close eye on you and I want to keep you as far away from pos uh, as possible from Choshu and Satsuma. I don't want you anywhere near Choshu or Satsuma or Kyoto for that matter. Okay, so I want the foreigners close enough for us to monitor you in the Bakufu, but still give you access to some of the markets that you want um, and keeps the foreigners out of the capital. We also don't want you running around in Edo because remember, uh, all the daimyo have their own agents and representative and hostages um, living in Edo. So if the foreigners are constantly walking around Edo, they're going to bump into uh, representatives of Choshu and Satsuma. We don't want you doing that either. So they uh, get the Americans to agree to open up their first treaty port in Yokohama. Yokohama, only a day's ride south of Edo. The exact opposite of the idea of Hong Kong with regard to the British and the Qing Empire. Uh, the Americans kind of wanted to be a little farther north uh, or much further southwest. Uh, they said, how about we get farther north, uh, north of Edo? Or if we can't have that, can we be in the far southwest? That's where the really lucrative markets are. That's where the really powerful domains are, Choshu and Satsuma. Um, and the Shogun said, <laughs> no, 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 no. Uh, you don't understand. I don't want you anywhere near Satsuma or Choshu. Um, so the Bakufu achieves its initial goal. All right. We didn't fight. And thus, we didn't get horrible, punitive uh, treaty like China has to deal with. Um, and we were able to convince the Americans to open up a treaty port as close as possible to Edo without being in Edo and as far away as possible from the domains that we fear. Okay, now we've got their first interactions underway. Now, here's where it's all going to fall apart. Okay, the decentralized Tokugawa state will facilitate power struggles not seen in Qing, China. All right. Um, though the Bakufu succeeded in isolating foreigners in Yokohama, there were still plenty of opportunities to cross paths with rival agents of Edo. Anytime they venture outside of Yokohama, they're traveling on the highways, the open roads that the Bakufu maintains. 
And on these roads, they still go to Edo sometimes for audiences with the shogun and his advisors, although they're not living in Edo. Uh, but when they travel to Edo for these audiences, they have to go on public roads. And it's on these roads that you get uh, the first acts of violence against the uh, foreign community, largely British and Americans living in Yokohama from 1861 to 1863, you know, three to five years after the signing of this treaty and the opening up of Yokohama, uh, you start to see acts of violence, acts of assassination, uh, you know, deliberate acts of violence intended to provoke, all right, towards the foreigners, sometimes even towards Bakufu officials who the other, who, uh, the other domain saw as responsible for allowing the foreigners to have this influence and access. And now they're living on Japanese land. Didn't you see our precedent before? We put them on an artificial island outside of Nagasaki. Now they're right here, a day south of Edo. Are you kidding me? I didn't like that. And so oftentimes you would get agents of Satsuma and Choshu uh, deliberately provoking and sending a message to the Bakufu that we don't like what you're doing. You're humiliating us by allowing them to do this. And they would assassinate foreigners, you know, merchants or whatnot, minor diplomats um, on the road. And this would create a diplomatic incident. The incidents are uh, dangerous and unpredictable. You never know if they might lead to war with a foreign power. However, fortunately for Edo and the shogun and his bakufu, the Western powers continued to treat Japan like Siam, not like China or India. They demanded reparations, but no military incursion. Pay that man's family for the financial damage that you've done, because they've lost their breadwinner now, um, and we'll call it even. And pledge that, you know, this won't happen again, blah, blah, blah. Um, pretty light. Getting off with a slap on the wrist compared to, you know, when similar things like this happen in China... All hell breaks loose and, you know, huge indemnities and whatnot and the possibility of war uh, is much more quickly resorted to than you're going to see um, with Japan. In fact, if anything, this rise in deliberate provocative violence targeting um, both the Westerners who left Yokohama and the agents of the Bakufu, that's important to understand, they get targeted as well. That two things together convinces the Westerners that we're in this together with the Bakufu, all right? Uh, any further incursions, any further uh, humiliating concessions that we might force the Bakufu to make uh, would f only further destabilize Japan with the prospect of minimal additional profit for us, okay? They recognize that in a way that they didn't, you know, they didn't take that calculus to China. They said, yeah, China, let's get another war. But, but let, let's, you know, this incident is a great pretext to get more concessions that all the officials will acknowledge and uh, facilitate and will make a ton of money in China. In Japan, they're saying what little profit we're already making could be endangered if we push the Bakufu too far because his power is precarious. Let's not tip the domino that knocks all the other dominoes down and then Japan's in chaos and we either have to retreat entirely and lose Japan and any influence and profit we have, we have to retreat entirely, or then even worse, we got to get involved. We got to take sides. We got to send our armies in. We don't want to do that. What a pain in the ass. So the result of all this is that the West actually agrees to uh, uh, let the Tokugawa state sign what becomes known as the 1862 London Protocol. 
in which the Western powers basically promised not to interfere or increase any sort of economic exactions on the Tokugawa state for another five years. What a great deal. If only China could get such great deals like this, history might have turned out differently, eh? <laughs> um, now, so Edo's strategy seems to be working out okay so far for the first five, ten years or so. Uh, they've limited the impact. Uh, but what they don't really realize to the full extent is how dissatisfied Choshu and Satsuma and Kyoto are, the other power holders, the other components of the power-sharing uh, balance in the Tokugawa state. And these other actors are starting to think we need to ally together in some way, find common interest against the Bakufu, reverse all these recent humiliations. We can't trust Edo anymore. And Edo, furthermore, is weak. They're not as strong as they used to be. Uh, they can't even resist these foreigners, you know, these, these barbarian merchants who come from 10,000 10, miles away. Uh, if they can't beat them, then we need, we, we need a new power in power, <laughs> essentially. And so what you get... At the same time the London Protocol is signed, you get uh, 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 many of these domains, they're more you know, hardliners, uh, pressure the Bakufu to issue an expulsion order against all the foreigners, reversing the Treaty of Amity and Commerce. And in 1863, they successfully pressure the Bakufu to issue a blanket expulsion order against the foreigners. Now the Bakufu is caught in a difficult situation here. Appeasing one side will enrage the others. So they first attempt to uh, effect a compromise. They tell the foreigners, in order to appease these domains and not destabilize the whole land, which will be bad for you too, in order to avoid that fate, we need to temporarily close Yokohama. But this will be temporary. We plan on opening it again, and we're not going to cut off all trade relations. We'll still find a way to make it work. Don't worry. But we have to do this to appease our domestic rivals. Britain and France... Say, you got to be kidding me. There's no way we're going to let you do this. You've already been so, so good to you. And this is the shit you pull on us now? I don't think so. And they say, if you carry out this expulsion order, we will invade Edo. How do you like that? So what happens here? Edo says, after they issue the expulsion order, um, they rescind it. And they say, okay, it's not going to apply here. But, as we know, what Edo says goes in Edo doesn't necessarily go in Choshu or Satsuma. So what happens, your next major turning point, is when uh, the British send, try to send their ships through the Shimonoseki Strait. Shimonoseki Strait. Uh, that'll become famous. Uh, you'll have the Treaty of Shimonoseki after the Sino-Japanese War in 1895 because it's signed there. Uh, the Shimonoseki Strait, uh, uh, Strait, which is a waterway that uh, goes right by the coast of Choshu on the way, uh, navigating through the islands of Kyushu, Shikoku, and Honshu to get to the eastern side and eventually to uh, Edo Bay. Um, when the British try to go through the Strait of Shimonoseki soon after the expulsion order has been rescinded, Choshu takes the initiative and closes the strait to British ships. The British say, well, we're going to respond the way we always respond. We're going to uh, 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 shoot at you. And they bombard Choshu from the water and attack them. And at this time, then, Edo realizes that it has to take a side because they've rescinded the expulsion order. And they've said that we're on the side of the British. We don't want you to dislike us. Uh, we will bring Choshu in line. So after the British have already declared war on Choshu and bombarded them, uh, Edo also attacks Choshu. And the conflict eventually is diffused. 
and Choshu uh, lets the British through the Straits of Shimonoseki. But you can see here, do you see it happening? This is creating a very dangerous situation. The kindling has been all laid out and people are lighting matches all around the edges of the kindling. And it's all gonna go up in flame. You think Choshu is happy with what happened here? Hell no. It's humiliating from their point of view. And Edo is completely delegitimized at this point. We need new leadership. And these are the tensions that lead to a coup in 1868. Anti-foreign factions from Choshu, Satsuma, and Kyoto allied together and undertake a clue. It's not a bloodless coup because some people are killed, uh, but it's not widespread war either. Um, and they manage to uh, uh, force the shogun to abdicate his office and they say, we are restoring the emperor. Remember, this is the old uh, uh, political fiction that they adhere to, um, in which the emperor still has always been in power, but uh, the shogun was his military protector. And they say, that fiction is over. He doesn't need protecting anymore. We're bringing him back to his throne. We're restoring what was previously a powerless puppet head. Um, uh, and we are, uh, this is called the Meiji Restoration the Meiji Restoration of 1868, Meiji being the reign name um, of the emperor who is restored. Um, this is the end of the Tokugawa state after 268 years. Now, there's a great irony here. The great irony is that once in power, these domain leaders who came to power on a platform of being, you know, stridently anti-foreign, um, they then start to ally with other prom pro uh, prominent daimyo and they say, well, what's your vision for a new Japan? You got rid of the shogun and the Tokugawa family. Uh, clearly, you must have something better. And very quickly, they realize uh, we're going to have to, to modernize, which is essentially westernization, um, because we need to be able to beat the foreigners. Um, otherwise, they'll be able to do whatever they want. The treaties were a result of losing in battle. Uh, in China's case, um, and we saw that if we try to, sh you know, close down the uh, Straits of Shimonoseki, they'll just attack us, and we're going to lose that battle. And so the irony of all of this is that the uh, Edo is overthrown on the strength of an anti-foreign movement and the humiliations that it's bringing in, but when they get into power, they themselves then realize we need to westernize, <laughs> the exact opposite of their original platform. Okay, um, there's another important comparison to make here. The same political dynamic will eventually bring down the Qing dynasty in 1911. You'll finally have many different constituencies in China who say, you know what, we've all been trying to work together in a centralized state for the last 50, 60 years. It hasn't worked. The Westerners get stronger and stronger, sink their claws ever further into us, and bleed our wealth. And finally, you will get destabilizing constituencies, chiefly in the military, um, in the last decade of the Qing dynasty that'll say, we need to take matters into our own hand and overthrow this dynasty and go on, you know, full-scale modernization. The tragedy in China's case is that it had to take much, much longer than in Japan. Uh, China was so much larger, such a longer history of being, you know, the undisputed hegemon, uh, feeling superior, um, always feeling like it could uh, just, you know, we'll just steer the ship a little bit to the right and, you know, uh, correct the course and we'll be able to catch up with the Westerners. This isn't an existential crisis. Um, and it actually, it was Japan would play a role in this. It was only when they lost to Japan in battle in the Sino-Japanese War in 1895 that they suddenly realized nothing's working. 
nothing's working and we got to change. And then that change would bring in uh, um, uh, constituencies of reform that would eventually overthrow the dynasty itself. Um, but they would get about a 50-year um, uh, delayed start on this westernization, this modernization that would cripple them for the, you know, the next 50 years of the 20th century as well and allow Japan to leapfrog them. Uh, Japan, despite being much smaller, having fewer resources, um, historical conditions conspire to give them the breathing space to not bear the brunt of Western exactions and exploitation um, and battles um, and allow them to modernize relatively peacefully and with Western support um, and leapfrog what had long been the undisputed hegemon of East Asia. Um, and then sink their own claws into China to finance the further, further uh, modernization and industrialization of the Japanese empire. And at that point, you get this you know, uh, vicious cycle from Japan's point of view. It's a wonderful cycle from <laughs> Japan's point of view, in which Japan keeps on getting more and more powerful at China's explicit expense. All right, so what sort of reform is undertaken during the Meiji era? The new Meiji government embarks on wholesale Western reform. Uh, for the next 70 years, the emperor will be stronger than he had been since the 9th or 10th century AD. All right, the emperor hasn't been this powerful in over 900 years. Okay, he's, a, he's, he's been a puppet head for a long time, totally powerless. And the shogun has had real power for, you know, 900 years. Um, and then suddenly, after you, uh, Japan loses in 1945 and Hirohito renounces his divinity um, and all political role, uh, suddenly he'll revert back immediately to the powerless uh, puppet head figure that he had for so many years. This is a bizarre development. Okay, from 1868 to 1945, the emperor actually will be powerful for a change. And modern Japanese identity, we'll talk about this a little bit later and we have a whole session on uh, Japanese ideology of the empire. Modern Japanese identity will rely heavily on the emperor for the next 70 years. They're going to elevate him to a divine status and talk about him as if he's the father of this people and we're all descended from him. And we're a divine race. That's going to be part of the ideology that we'll see to unite the people. And they'll elevate what they see as unique Japanese religion, Shinto which previously had been you know, hopelessly intertwined with Buddhism to the point where you couldn't even really tell what elements of a particular religion or temple were Buddhist and what elements were uh, Japanese. Uh, they're going to artificially separate the two and say, no, 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 Shintoism, that's native Japanese. Buddhism, foreign religion, we need to clamp down on that. Okay. Um, the last impediments to reform are the samurai class, this hereditary class that was once uh, very martially oriented. Uh, you know, often they were people who were sent into villages to enforce taxes, uh, to enforce orders that uh, they knew people didn't want to receive, and samurai were sent in to resort to violence if need be. Um, later on, during the Tokugawa era, the samurai lose most of their martial function because it's 268 years, largely of peace, and not a whole lot of war, if any war at all. Um, and so many of the samurai turn to civil and literary pursuits um, and end up being a parasite on the state. Some of them will become quite poor and not have stipends anymore. Um, there's a lot of economic discontent with the samurai who feel like the world is sort of passing them by. Uh, it is. <laughs> it's also uh, uh, hoping that they'll go away um, because they are a drain on state finances and they don't really serve a whole lot of useful functions anymore. Um, they're also the most xenophobic um, and anti-foreign. It's sort of one of the last causes that they gravitate towards um, in their dying uh, uh, decades. 
Um, and the class, the samurai class, will be dismissed in, 17, in 1873 by decree. Okay, this is part of the modernizing uh, bent uh, uh, thrust of the new Meiji state. We're going to change everything about Japan so that we can become a powerful uh, state uh, along the lines of the Western states. And so this is an anachronistic holdover from the feudal era. Samurai class has to go. Um, and they dismiss them in an 1873 decree. The last samurai rebellion takes place in 1877 in Satsuma in, uh, as a reaction to the dissolution of their privileges. And uh, this is uh, the movie that uh, Tom Cruise is in, uh, The Last Samurai, um, which I'm sure is... Uh, uh, bears little resemblance to uh, much of the historical facts. I don't think I actually made it through. I think I, I watched part of the film um, and then seen Tom Cruise in 19th century Japan and whatnot fighting in battles along samurai was just a little too bizarre for me, and I think I gave it up. That's one thing about being a historian. It ruins all historical movies for you. I can't watch any historical dramas on TV or historical movies. I'm just immediately, from start to finish, I'm saying, this is ridiculous. That, that couldn't happen. They didn't talk like this. They didn't do this. This is They didn't think like this. Even if it's not nothing to do with China, um, you know, you immediately can recognize when present day attitudes and views and, you know, political platforms and this and that are being projected backwards. And it ruins the whole thing. It's kind of a shame. I wish I could watch a historical drama without yelling at the TV all the time. Um, the new goal of the Meiji state, we're almost done here. Uh, we want to abolish the provisions of extraterritoriality. All right. That's the, 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 uh, cardinal symbol of your humiliation is the fact that, uh, it's not just losing wars and financial reparations and indemnities and all that. Um, it's the fact that foreigners can live in your country and not be subject to your laws and you have no power over them. If they get into a dispute with your citizens, um, they, they, you cannot try them in your courts. You can't use local justice. They get tried by their own courts and it's military justice. Oftentimes they will get off scot-free. They can, you know, uh, commit all kinds of things where if they committed these horrendous things in their home country, they might, they'd probably be executed. Uh, but they, they commit them in your country and they get a slap on the wrist, if anything whatsoever. Extraterritoriality sucks. And China hates it. J uh, Japan hates it. So they say, how do we get rid of extraterritoriality? The Western countries say, only if you reform along Western lines and become civilized like us with the institutions that we have, then we'll feel comfortable, um, you know, uh, uh, allowing our citizens to abide by your rules. But that's only just really the rhetoric. The reality is that the Westerners will only leave when uh, they know they can't win on the battlefield anymore. So, um, unlike with China... The West allows Japan breathing room and the time to reform without crippling intervention. These agendas are exemplified in what becomes known as the 1872 Iwakura mission to Europe and U.S., in which uh, uh, new Meiji diplomats are touring the United States um, and Europe. Uh, Qing Dynasty diplomats are also doing the same thing around this time. They want to discuss the terms of renegotiation of the unequal treaties, and what sort of benchmarks of reform uh, the West would consider as acceptable uh, to abolish extraterritoriality. Um, and during the Iwakura mission, uh, the delegation uh, in 1872, while they're in London, they uh, uh, make the following proclamation, which gives us a good idea of what they see as their chief task for the next couple of years. They say, quote, the policy of our government is to endeavor to assimilate Japan as far as possible to the enlightened states of the West. This embassy was sent to England in order to study her institutions and to observe all that constitutes English civilization so as to adopt whatever they think may be suitable. All right. This is very fawning language. 
Now, remember, if you listen to one of our earlier episodes, Qing envoys to the West in the 60s and 70s, when you get your first uh, uh, Qing dynasty diplomats uh, uh, doing the exact same thing, they're not talking like this, okay? Uh, they're not being sent to Europe uh, to study all these institutions, to overhaul all of Chinese society. They're not talking about the enlightened states of the West. Man, that's some serious ass-kissing right there. This is showing us how much the new Meiji state is determined to, you know, undertake breakneck westernization. And the Qing dynasty is not ready to do this. They don't think they need to. The British response to this Iwakura mission announcement uh, makes it clear that treaty negotiation is dependent on reform. Quote, we will yield the local authorities jurisdiction over British subjects in Japan in precise proportion to their advancement in enlightenment and civilization. Okay, they're saying, yeah, you're right. We are enlightened. We are civilized far more than you. And we'll determine when you've reached our standards. Okay. Uh, what follows over the next 20 years are, it can only be described as an astonishing achievement of these benchmarks, unmolested by the West, as China will continue to be molested. 1871, the new Meiji state abolishes all the domains and implements prefectures in their place, much more of a centralized government now, just like counties um, in China. All right, prefectures, not these semi-autonomous domains. 1870, no, no daimyo anymore. 1872, you get your first railroads, your first telegraphs, a national postal system. 1873, the first National Bank of China and the first currencies, national currencies. You don't have national currencies before. It's different and, you know, throughout the domains. 1870s, the whole decade. The first forays, the first moves towards gaining land outside of the main three home islands. They assert their influence in Korea. They send a military expedition to Taiwan. They formally take over Hokkaido in the north, the fourth island, which we'll be talking about in our very next episode, um, and increasingly integrate the Ryukyus down to the south, Okinawa, what will eventually become Okinawa Prefecture. All these things we're going to talk about more in the future. This is a little preview of what's going on. By 1885... Japan's judicial, legislative, and administrative system is on par with most Western countries. By 1889, they've promulgated a constitution and a constitutional monarchy. By this point, Japan has become so strong and impressive and emulative of the Western countries that uh, Britain and the United States are afraid that uh, Tokyo may just unilaterally ab uh, uh, abolish the treaties. And there'd be nothing we can do about it because we now know we don't want to go to war with these guys either. It's not going to be as easy as it would have been 20, 30 years ago. So in order to avoid this humiliation, you don't want a state to preemptively abolish your treaties. Then you have to have a response. And if your response is to go to war, you better be confident you can win that war without you know, a huge cost. And if you're not confident of that, then you better find a way to get rid of the treaties before they unilaterally abrogate those treaties. So in order to avoid this humiliation, the, West, the Western countries voluntarily initiate discussions now by 1889 to abolish extraterritoriality and the unequal treaties. 1894, the start of the Sino-Japanese War, Britain agrees to end extraterritoriality within five years and unequal tariffs by 1911. That'll end up actually happening much earlier as a result. Okay, China does not abolish extraterritoriality until 1943. Think of that for comparison of how different the situations are now. Okay? 
Japan gets their first major mission from the West, uh, belligerent mission from the West in 1853. China had it in 1839. That's a difference of 14 years. Uh, now, uh, with regards to extraterritoriality, what's 43 plus 6? 49. 49 years now separate the abolition of extraterritoriality in Japan and China. That is your benchmark of how Japan overtook China. Japan is now a fully accepted sovereign geopolitical player in Asia by 1894. The scene is set for expansion well beyond the three home islands. Okay, I said three home islands. How many home islands are there? Now you think there's four. Well, before we get to Korea and Taiwan and the mainland and Micronesia, uh, there's actually a few little wrinkles that we need to smooth out here in Japan's domestic situation. Um, we talked about the unequal treaties today and uh, di different responses to the West. Um, we need to understand something about the islands that are right immediately in the vicinity of those of uh, Honshu, Shikoku, and Kyushu. Okay, uh, that's Hokkaido. Hokkaido is the name that it has today. It did not have that name in the 17th century in the early Tokugawa era. All right. Next time, we're going to be talking about Japan's uh, so-called internal aliens. The Ainu in Hokkaido to the north and the Ryukyuns in the Ryukyun archipelago to the south, uh, today known as Okinawa, named after the largest island in that archipelago. All this in episode 43 of Beyond Wasya. Thank you.